Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, number 24, from mid-September 2023. The best woman golfer in the country, Glenna Collette Vare. Welcome to the 24th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, an historic and active cemetery in Bala, Kenwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide and volunteer podcaster. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869. It's across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. Like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or the conservatory in the Bell Tower. If you enter from Belmont, follow the road past the second gate that has the white line in the middle. That'll take you straight to the conservatory. Another possibility, come in while you're walking the Kinwood Heritage Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the R6 to Maniunk or a bus to the Wissahickon Transportation Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge. You will be leaving Philadelphia and coming into Montgomery County, and then walk up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. This 24th episode of Biographical Bites from Ballas from mid-September 2023. Glenna Collette discovered when she was 14 years old that she could drive a golf ball more than 100 yards down the middle of the fairway. By the time she was 19, she had hit the ball more than 300 yards and had won the U.S. Women's Amateur title. And then she won it five more times. During her brilliant career, she won 49 amateur tournaments and seemed unstoppable. Even in her 50s, she was beating women half her age, and she carried a 15 handicap when she was 81. She was called the female Bobby Jones and the greatest American woman golfer of the 1920s and 1930s. I discovered that she was buried at Laurel Hill West while I was researching the recent podcast about golf course pioneers. I hope this podcast resurrects her reputation as one of the great ones. 
1917, champion bicyclist George Collette took his 14-year-old daughter Glenna with him to the golf course. Glenna was a bit of a tomboy. She'd learned to swim and dive when she was nine. She'd started to drive a car when she was ten. She played baseball with her younger brother Ned, and she was a decent third baseman. She could throw the ball further than most of the boys. Her mother suggested she try a game more becoming of a young girl, so she took up tennis. She sportingly gave it a shot. She was good at it, but it was the trip with her father to Metacomet Golf Club in East Providence, Rhode Island, that became her life-changing event. Metacomet was a private golf club incorporated in 1901. It was named for the great Wampanoag chief Metacomet, also known by his Americanized name, King Philip. Glenna watched from the clubhouse veranda as her father set a long, raking tee shot through the air. She was tremendously impressed, and she hurried onto the course. She asked permission to play along with him. She had never touched a golf club before in her life. Well, her father and some friends bemusedly asked her to hit a tee shot, which she proceeded to smash more than a hundred yards down the middle of the fairway. This stirred some enthusiasm among her father and his friends. The coming champion, shouted one sun-browned veteran, who asked her to do it again. She obliged. She moved from hole to hole, followed by lavish praise and warm encouragement from men at least three times her age. She had a natural swing and could hit a golf ball as far as any of the woman players, if not farther. Whether they were kidding about the coming champion or not didn't matter. George Collette was elated, and Glenna's head was bursting with the soaring dreams that only the very young and ambitious live and know. As she came off the course, after her first try on a course, she felt her destiny was settled. Glenna Collette would become a champion golfer. In a 1934 essay, Glenna wrote, It was, in retrospect, as simple as that. No bypass, no hesitations, no doubts. No longer would mother have to worry about my ball playing with brother. No longer would I aspire for honors on the tennis court. The strings of my racket gathered dust, rotted, and snapped in protesting neglect. Golf was my game. My wagon was indeed fastened to a star. I dreamed of someday being the champion. After she set her goal, Glenna now sought the shortest route to reach it. She looked for books about women in golf, and she found nothing. She knew there had to be a secret, something that caused the few leading golfers, who were not so different in everyday life from the featureless mass of players, to excel. She studied and observed the actions of the better-known woman golfers who played on the East Coast, like Alexa Sterling, Elaine Rosenthal, Marion Hollins, and she tried to learn the mystery of their success on the links. What she learned was there was no mystery about it. These golfers excelled because they exercised faculties every athlete possessed in some degree or another, but they were more accurate more painstaking. They hit harder. They had iron nerve under the strains of tournament play. They studied and improved their game. There was no mystery. 
only plenty of hard work and concentration. Glenna Collette was born on 20 June 1903 in New Haven, Connecticut. Her father, George Henry Collette, 1876-1928, was a renowned competitive bicyclist. In 1898, he won a national meet in Indianapolis by finishing the half-mile race in 1 minute 3 fifths seconds, just a hair under 30 miles per hour. I found an article in the New York Times from 22 October 1899 with a dateline of New Haven, Connecticut. George H. Collette, champion amateur wheelman of this city, had won 49 firsts, 20 seconds, and 10 thirds during the racing season. He is scheduled to compete in 10 more races. 1899 was the year that George Collette won the national championship. George won the sprinting championship of Europe in Paris on 6 June 1903. He did not make it back home in time when his daughter Glenna and son Marshall were born to his wife Ada Florence Wilkinson Collette. Marshall died before his second birthday. The family moved to Rhode Island when Glenna was six years old. George became a general agent for Mutual Life of Worcester. In addition to bicycling, he was an excellent bowler who hit 300 several times. And he played a creditable game of handball. George's championship was earned at the Velodrome Buffalo in Paris, which existed from 1892 until the Great War, when it was demolished and the land was used for an airplane factory. Its name, Velodrome Buffalo, came from the showman Buffalo Bill Cody, whose circus had played there early in its existence. After Glenna showed promise in golf, her father cut back on his own career to help his daughter with hers. He took her to his golf club every opportunity. In the evenings after dinner, she would hit hundreds of golf balls into a golf net he set up for her in their backyard. During summer vacation from school, Glenna played from morning until night, took lessons, and practiced. And when she was old enough to drive legally, George gave her a car. After that, she seldom missed a day at the club. She challenged older members, hoping to learn from them. Glenna's first rounds were an ordeal. She was long and accurate off the tee, but wild with everything else, and often she missed more shots than she made, got into all sorts of hazards, and would finish a round with embarrassing scores of around 150. She often thought about quitting, but she enjoyed the thrill of hitting the ball far down the fairway way too much. In 1917, the American Red Cross sent an exhibition tour of young golfers around the country as a moneymaker. It came to nearby Rumford, Rhode Island. The traveling quartet, called the Dixie Kids, featured Alexis Sterling, age 20, Elaine Rosenthal, age 21, Bobby Jones, age 15, and Perry Adair, age 18. Sterling had just won the National Women's Championship and was considered the best woman golfer in the land. Jones had made a name for himself by qualifying at the National Amateur at Marion. Remember, he was 15 years old, just a year older than Glenna. Glenna went to see them, each just a few years older than her, and was inspired by what she saw. While the men paid attention to Bobby Jones, the women tended to follow Alexis Sterling. 
Elaine Rosenthal was the one who made news that day at Wanamoiset by shooting an 80. Glenna watched every move the older girls made, and she learned. And when she next played, she did not think of her stance, her hands, or her feet. She says, all I did was endeavor to hit the ball, and I must say there was decided improvement. She wasn't overthinking anymore. By the time she was 18, she had hit a measured tee shot that traveled 307 yards. That's further than most men could shoot, and at the time it was a world record for women. And don't forget, this was in the years before metal-shafted golf clubs. She topped 300 yards with a wooden shaft. She continued to practice. She took lessons from Scottish-American golf pro Alex Smith at her home base of Metacomet. Smith had won the 1906 and 1910 U.S. Open. He was also known as a long driver. Her first big tournament was the Rhode Island Women's Championship in the fall of 1918. She was 15 years old. She finished near the bottom with an uncomfortable 132. But in 1919, between June and October, she played in 10 formal tournaments and steadily improved. Just before her 16th birthday, she played in the Women's Eastern Championship at the Apawamas Club near Rye, New York, and she was paired with Mrs. Caleb Fox, the oldest player in the tournament. Cameras followed the odd couple from hole to hole. Glenna's brassy refused to cooperate, and her putter was as stubborn as ever. She finished at 107. But several of the top-notchers had floundered terribly on this course. It was at Apawamas that Glenna Collette's attitude toward crowds and championship play altered. She learned how to steel herself against the irritations and distractions that are inherent in tournaments. She was simultaneously disgusted with her play and ready to throw away her clubs, yet eager to get into another tournament where she could show what she could really do, which she knew was better. Now, at the time, there was no such thing as women's professional golf. Glenna entered the National Women's Amateur Championship in 1919, and at age 16 saw what she had to learn. Golf was not just a matter of good or even perfect strokes. Many other things were required to win a championship. Nerve control, good physical condition for going the long way over the course, making the impossible shot to win the match, and above all, never letting down, however great the strain. Her first tournament win finally came at Shenacosset Country Club Championship in Groton, Connecticut when she shot an 86 in the qualifying round and poured it on in the final against Elaine Rosenthal, whom she beat one up in match play. As I am sure you've noted by now, many golf clubs which started in the 1890s and the early 1900s took the names of Native American tribes associated with that area. When she next played at the National Women's Championship, it was at Mayfield Country Club in Cleveland that is currently part of the Mayfield Sandridge Club. Alexa Sterling was again the woman to beat, and Glenna shot a respectable 93 in the qualifying rounds, the same as the year before. But instead of being in eighth place, she was tied for 18th. 
which shows how women's play had improved in general over a one-year period. Her 1922 season began favorably. She won the North and South Amateur at Pinehurst, North Carolina, then went on to the Eastern Championship at the Westchester Biltmore Course at Rye, New York, with 246 for three rounds, a record for the event. It was in 1922 that she set a qualifying round record with a round of 81. Golf writers started to predict that she had a better-than-even chance of winning the national. This time it would be at White Sulphur, West Virginia, only four years after her first appearance in the Boston Association matches, when she had been called the coming champion. The competition was brutal. Marion Hollins, defending champion. Chicago and Edith Cummings, also known as the Fairway Flapper, who served as a model for F. Scott Fitzgerald's Jordan Baker in The Great Gatsby, and generally acknowledged to be the most attractive woman in tournament play. Mrs. F. C. Letts, the giant killer, and others. Glenis Holtz rose when she went around the Greenbrier course in 75, two days before the tournament began. She decided that the secret to this score was the dinner she had eaten the night before. Two lamb chops, cream potatoes, and string beans. So every night during the tournament, her dinner menu was the same. She also decided that the skirt, sweater, and the hat she wore that day of 75 must be her lucky combination. So she wore the same costume all through the tournament. Glennon's qualifying round with Marion Hollins was closely fought, and she managed an 81 against her opponent's 83. The long grind began, with each day harder than the one before. She won her first two preliminaries before meeting her foe, Edith Cummings, who, as one writer described, swaggered along as jauntily as a bullfighter, ready to pounce on any mistake her opponent made. Edith set the pace for nine holes and was three up at the turn. But Glenna rallied, and as they came up to the 17th, they were even. Then Edith drove into the rough. Glenna made the hole and was one up. They both pitched over a stream to the 18th green, and Glenna's ball landed closer to the cup. Her first putt came within inches of holing out, while Edith took a three putt and an 83. Glenna tapped in her ball for an 82. Now only one person stood between her and the trophy, Mrs. W.A. Gavin of England, who had shot a 78 in her semifinal round. The morning of the final started well for Glenna. Her long, accurate drives gave her steady advantage over Mrs. Gavin and consistently left her opponent 20 to 50 yards behind. Glenna was up six, at the end of the first 18 holes. The Englishwoman, who had reached the final of the American Championship three times, was not in her best form. She shot 45 for her first nine holes, and although she steadied during the afternoon play, her morning score was too much to overcome. The match ended at the 14th hole, five up and four to play for Glenna. She had won her first national amateur tournament. Starting in 1922, Glenna began spending her winters in Florida, usually at Bel Air. On one occasion, she was playing a match there on a course that was crossed by railroad tracks. 
As she came to the tracks, a train approached the fairway. Without hesitation, she took the spoon from the bag and played the ball over the train to the green, astonishing her opponents and scaring the wits out of passengers in the line of flight. 1923 was the year she would turn 20, and she was still learning, but she already had a national championship to defend. She defended her North and South title at Pinehurst by beating Marion Hollins 5-4 in the final match. She went on to win the Eastern at the White Marsh Valley course, which had been recently designed by George C. Thomas, one of the architects I talked about in an earlier podcast. The weather was insufferably hot, and only four of the contenders broke 90. But Glenna beat Alexa Sterling by six strokes. At the Buffalo Country Club Invitational, she finally beat her foe, Audrey Faust, on the 20th hole. And in the late summer of 1923, Glenna won the Canadian Championship. But when she went to defend her title in the American National, she lost in the third round to Mrs. Clarence Vanderbeck of Philadelphia, who died in 1935 and is also interred at Laurel Hill West in the Washington section. It was in 1924 that Glenna set a record that will almost certainly never be surpassed. She was the first woman to break 80 in the U.S. Women's Amateur when she shot 79, but in that year she played in 60 competitive rounds. She lost one, and the story of that one defeat bears repeating. In August 1924, Mary Kay Brown was a finalist against Helen Wills in the National Singles Tennis Championship at Forest Hills. Two weeks later, she and Glenna met in the semifinal of the National Golf Championship at Glenna's home club, the Rhode Island Country Club in Providence. Mary Kay, as friends called her, was 12 years older than Glenna and one of her idols. Glenna had watched Mary Kay lose her three-set match just weeks before meeting her on the links in the semifinals. Imagine that. This woman went from playing in the finals of the U.S. Open to playing in the finals of the National Golf Championship, Women's Amateur Golf Championship, in less than a month. It was an all-out battle, and after 17 holes, Glenna was one up. On the 18th, Brown's fairway wood approach shot veered into the woods, but it hit a tree and it bounced onto the green. She sank the putt to win the hole and extend the match. On the 19th hole, Glenna made the green with an approach shot just three inches from the cup. Mary Kay lay further back on the green. To Glenna, it seemed to take forever as her opponent dressed the ball, head and body still, slowly drew back her putter. Glenna felt her hands grow clammy. She gripped her club hard. The gallery was silent. Mary Kay struck her ball, and Glenna watched helplessly as it moved slowly toward the cup. It looked like it would miss by inches. But as it seemed to slither away, it struck Glenna's ball and ricocheted into the cup. Mary Kay Brown had won and moved on to the final, which she lost to Scottish golfer Dorothy Campbell Hurd. Glenna regained her national title in 1925, and then she won it again in 1928, 29, and 30. 
She also snagged the French title in 1925, the Canadian in 23 and 24, the Eastern in 22, 23, 24, and 27, the North and South in 1922, 23, 24, 27, 29, and 30, the Palm Beach in 23, 24, 25, Florida East Coast in 25 and 28, the Buffalo Invitation in 23, 24, 28, the Shenacosset in 1920, 22, 23, 24, and 26. And, of course, the five U.S. national titles. Despite several attempts at the English amateur title, she was always defeated, usually by Joyce Weatherid, with whom she became lifelong friends. Her rounds against Weatherid are probably worthy of an essay in themselves. Glenna was a bold dominant player who attacked each hole with fury and accuracy. She also had a little patience on the course and made it a goal to get around the 18 holes in no longer than two hours. Only two American women were considered her near equal. Alexa Sterling, whom she'd beat 9-8 and eight in 1925, and Virginia Van Wee, whom she thrashed 13-12 and 12 in 1928. That is a record that stood until 1961. In the September 17, 1927 edition of New Yorker magazine, there was an article about Glenna in the profile section on page 27. It talked about her blue Mercer automobile, which had been given to her by friends in Providence after she won the 1925 National Women's Championship. The Mercer Type 35 raceabout was a high-performance vehicle that was made from 1909 to 1925. Glenna was recognized by everyone in the city, especially when she went 70 miles per hour through town. Once a Providence police officer caught up with her and standing with his foot on the running board asked her to stay under 50 when you pass the courthouse. The author of the New Yorker profile, Niven Bush Jr., described Glenna's form. She has always played her wooden shots beautifully. A long, easy backswing with the left shoulder moving forward and held a pause and then the downswing starting, the forearms picking it up, the wrists sending the ball away, compact in a rhythm, as nice to watch as the turn of a wing or a yacht's sail. None of the lunging hips and shoulders you see in so many women golfers, even good ones. Maureen Orcutt and Virginia Van Wee putt and approach just as well as she does, but they don't get as far from the tee. She outdrives every woman except Joyce Weatherit. Whether she misses a shot or gets a lucky break, her facial expression never changes. She has plenty of time to go to parties. When urged, she does a solo Charleston or a black bottom, and people usually urge her because these dances are worth watching the way she does them, even if they aren't the rage anymore. She rides well. She plays good bridge. She even sings and plays the ukulele. And when she drives her car, her police dog Lobo sits up on the seat beside her to the envy of her wire-haired terrier buddy. Once she went down in a submarine. The profile did not mention that she was also still a good tennis player and she excelled at trap shooting. 
The same year, 1927, she was profiled in the American Girl magazine's November edition. She gave a lot of basic tips to girls who wanted to become excellent athletes. A girl who is strong and willing to keep at her favorite game can learn how to play well. Never be content with less than your best. In 1928, she wrote her book entitled Ladies in the Rough. It has a foreword from Bobby Jones. Unfortunately, I could not find a copy online. In May 1931, the New York Times announced the engagement of Glenna Collette to Edwin H. Vare Jr. of Philadelphia. Everyone in the city knew the name Vare. Edwin was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and a member of the Pine Valley Club and Philadelphia Country Club. He was one of six golf-playing siblings, including his sister, Dorothy Vare Watt, another top woman golfer who once won the Pennsylvania Amateur Championship. Edwin's father, Edwin Sr., was state senator of Pennsylvania and a Republican leader in Philadelphia. Edwin and his brothers, William and George, were known as the Dukes of South Philadelphia and controlled patronage jobs for several decades. The brothers were in the contracting business and were involved in the building of the Broad Street Subway, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and Municipal Stadium, later called John F. Kennedy Stadium, and the site of 41 Army-Navy games before it was torn down in 1992. Fellow Laurel Hill Cemetery guide Tom Keels is working on a biography of the Vera family. I hope to coax him into doing a podcast so he can tell you of their shenanigans. All three Vare brothers are interred at Laurel Hill West, but in different plots. Glenna Collette and Edwin Vare were married in Greenwich, Connecticut, in an Episcopalian ceremony on 24 June 1931 at a friend's home in front of 75 guests. Glenna's maid of honor was sports writer and golfer Beatrice Walsh of Wisconsin. The couple decided to make their home in the Overbrook section of the city. Her daughter, also named Glenna, was born on 21 June 1933 at Lankanaw Hospital. Her son, Edwin III, followed on 16 July 1934. Although she happily took on motherhood and more traditional female activities like needlepoint, she continued to head to the golf course whenever possible. And she returned to tournament play, determined to win one more amateur championship so she could see her new name on the cup. Only a few months after giving birth to her son, she lost in late 1934. But in 1935, when she was 32 years old, she played a 17-year-old phenom named Patty Berg, who was in the amateur for the first time. Glenna topped Patty and captured her sixth and final national amateur title. Hers is a record that will never be broken. The Ladies Professional Golf Association, LPGA, started in 1950 with Patty Berg as an inaugural member. It would be virtually impossible that a female golfer would stay amateur for long enough to break Colette Vare's record of six titles. In the early 1930s, Glenna played a major role in initiating the biannual Curtis Cup matches between teams of women amateurs representing America and Britain. She took a team to Britain in 1930 for unofficial matches. 
The following year, the British Ladies Golf Union and USGA agreed to the new competition, and Glenna was on the U.S. team at the first Curtis Cup in 1932. She played in four Curtis Cups and captained in four more, twice serving as player captain. Six times she was part of Team USA in the USA versus Great Britain and Ireland match. In 1982, she attended the 50th anniversary of the first competition as an honored guest. The Curtis Cup, by the way, has nothing to do with publisher Cyrus H.K. Curtis, who's interred just a short distance from Vare. Glenna Collette Vare is usually credited with 49 wins in amateur tournaments between 1921 and 1935. She continued to play golf for the rest of her life, mostly for the fun of it. She never became a professional, but her competitive streak never entirely waned, and her final tournament win of note was in the Rhode Island Women's Golf Association Championship in 1959, when she was 56 years old. In 1962, she entered the first ever U.S. Senior Women's Amateur Championship and finished second to one of her old nemeses, Maureen Orcutt. When her children were grown and her husband retired, they moved to the warm weather of Florida so she could continue her lifelong passion. You have probably heard her name and weren't aware of her significance. In 1950, she became a charter member of the Women's Golf Hall of Fame. Since 1953, the golfer with the lowest scoring average on the LPGA Tour each year receives the Vare Trophy. The first winner was Patty Berg whom Glenna had defeated 18 years earlier. And the winner of the U.S. Junior Girls Championship is awarded the Glenna Collette Vare Trophy by the United States Golf Association. For many years, her portrait hung in the main hallway of the United States Golf Association's Golf House Museum and Library in Far Hills, New Jersey. Glenna was presented the Bob Jones Award by the USGA in 1965. She's a member of the Connecticut Golf Hall of Fame, Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame, Rhode Island Golf Hall of Fame, and International Women's Sports Hall of Fame. The World Golf Hall of Fame opened at Pinehurst in 1974. Glenna was not one of the original members, which did include Patty Berg and Babe Zaharias. But the next year she was in, the first woman amateur to be admitted. This museum is now located in St. Augustine, Florida. Much to my surprise, she is not in the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame. Herbert Warren Wind, America's most revered golf writer, said of Glenna, young men wrote poems about her infinite charms as she stood silhouetted against the horizon at Pebble Beach. Older men claim that she was the exact type William Dean Howells had in mind when he had stated that the crowning product of America was the American girl. Edwin Vare died in 1975. His cremains were interred in his father's family crypt at Laurel Hill West, it's in the Hanover section, just behind the mausoleum of cough drop magnate William H. Luden. In 1984, at the age of 81, 
Glenna Collette Vare still had a 15 handicap, and she played in her 61st consecutive invitational event at the Point Judith Country Club in Rhode Island. Her drive from the first tee was dozens of yards in front of her three companions, each roughly one-third her age. But she was slowing down. At age 86, she died of lymphoma in Gulfstream, Florida in 1989, on the same day as mandolin player Jethro Burns of the country music comedy duo Homer and Jethro. Glenna was survived by her son, Edwin Collette Vare of New Haven, her daughter, Glenna Kalin of Caracas, Venezuela, and her brother, Ned of Brewster, Massachusetts. Her ashes were placed next to her husband's in the Vare family crypt. Don't be discouraged if you visit and you can't find her marker. There's a large ledger stone that marks her final resting place, but the only name on it is that of her father-in-law, Edwin H. Vare, the female Bobby Jones, perhaps the greatest American female golfer of the first half of the 20th century, sadly has no marker to indicate her final resting place. The October edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 55, is called The Supremes. Robert Greer sat on the United States Supreme Court for 24 years, and he weighed in on some of the most important decisions of the 19th century, including the Dred Scott decision. George Sharswood has a neighborhood near Brewerytown named for him, as well as a school in South Philadelphia. He was founder and dean of the Penn Law School, and he sat on the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania for 14 years. One of his decisions may have delayed women's suffrage in Pennsylvania for more than 30 years. James T. Mitchell sat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for 14 years. He served as editor of the American Law Register for a quarter of a century, and he amassed the finest collection of lithographic portraits of presidents of the United States. In Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode number 25 from mid-October, I will tell you the story of the Wagner Free Institute and its founder, William Wagner, a man who believed in free higher education for anyone who sought it. His philosophy is being carried on to this day. There are self-guided tours available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you can find it with your podcasts. It's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit and another in the opposite direction. If you do the round trip, it's almost two hours of stopping at stones, peeping in mausoleums, and hearing about nearly 100 people who helped make Philadelphia what it is today. All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala are mostly researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster for both cemeteries. You can reach me through my email, joe at joelex.net. The theme song, Names at Peace, is by local artist James Harrell. Maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. Bibliography follows. Tons and tons of newspaper articles about Glenna Collette and then Mrs. Edward Vare, 
which is what the newspapers did when somebody got married probably up until the mid-1960s. What I did find online, which means you can find them also, and this is mostly through archives.net, in the Women's Clubhouse, the greatest women golfers in their own words, edited by Terry Leonard. It was Contemporary Books, 1934. The chapter by Glennet Collette Vare runs from pages 71 to 84. There's a 1956 book called Story of American Golf. Sorry, I did not write down the printer for that. But Kalena's story is from pages 243 to 258. 1964 book, Famous American Women Athletes by Helen Hull Jacobs. That was published by Dodd Mead and Company, New York. And Glenna is pages 87 through 96. 1991 publication, The Illustrated History of Women's Golf by Rhonda Glenn, Taylor Publishing Company, Dallas, Texas, pages 69 to 83. In 2000, Golf, the Women's Game by Roger Vaughn. Stuart Tabori and Chang was the publisher, New York, pages 43 to 51. I mentioned the New Yorker article from 1927 and the other 1927 article, the American Girl magazine, written by Glenna Collette, sportswoman, pages 12 and 40. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay well.